we're in Exodus chapter 21 this evening, Exodus 21 and 22. All right, going to do something a little different. How many of you guys were here Saturday or Sunday? Raise your hand, okay? I was, I was here Saturday and Sunday as well, so anybody remember what section of scripture we were in? Let me know. Psalms what? Psalms 1. Okay. So what was the challenge of Psalms 1? To delight and meditate, right? So now you don't have to answer this out loud. Has anything changed since Saturday and Sunday? So now we're Wednesday. We're into the week. Uh, Have you pressed in in a unique way, a different way to say, I want to be delighting and meditating on uh, God's word? And if the answer is yes, praise the Lord. If the answer is no, it's not too late, right? Say, Lord, I really want to go deeper in my study of your word and delight uh, in the word of God and meditating on the word because being that tree that's planted by the river of water is is worth it. And you're doing that tonight. You made the effort to be here on a Wednesday night to delight in the word, meditate on the word. So let's let's pray that God would meet us. Father, we do thank you for your word, your communication to us, that you desire to speak to us. That each chapter, that each verse is powerful, it's ordained and inspired by you. So would you give us ears to hear tonight? And even as we go through this study of looking at the law and how it points us to our our need for a Savior, may we walk away with a, a deeper appreciation of who you are, Jesus. God, would you give us encouragement where we need it for those tonight that just really need your encouragement? Would you encourage them? Or those that are seeking guidance and wisdom, would you be gracious to provide that to them? Lord, for correction that we need in our lives, that you would bring correction and that you would bring conviction. Or we do pray over the church for the month of December and ask that you would really bless this month, bless this women's gathering, encourage the, the ladies of our church and of our community. And Lord, we pray for families, that you'd bless families that you would have your hand on our community, that you would protect our city from suicide, that many people would be saved this, this month, that you would give us opportunities to share the gospel. So Lord, we love you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We're going to be looking at lessons from the law. Exodus 21 and 22, we're diving into the details, the particulars of of God's law, of how they were to be treating one another, how they're to treat property, laws on justice. This is a section of scripture that you could easily read over quickly, but as we spend some time in it, I think there's a lot of lessons uh, for us. But it's really important to know how does the law of God fit into the Bible and how does it fit into our lives? First is, as we're reading the Old Testament, God knows where he's going. He's the ultimate author of the word and author of events. And he is bringing us to the point where his son is born, the savior of the world. He knows what our arguments would be of why we might say that we don't need a savior. You don't have to send your son I don't need the sacrifice of your son. I just need a perfect environment. So God creates Adam and Eve in a perfect environment. And of course, they sin. A perfect environment doesn't solve our sin problem. So 
not a perfect environment, but just give me a set of rules. Give me a set of laws. God has 613 commands, and these commands humble us and show us our need for a Savior. As we read through this tonight, one of the purposes for the law is that God is giving us a schoolmaster to bring us to a place of humility, a teacher, a tutor, to say, I need Jesus to die upon the cross for my sins. I think after reading through this tonight, you're going to go, wow, I'm so thankful for the sacrifice of Christ. But if it wasn't for the law, then we wouldn't see our need for a Savior. We would tend to tell God, just give me some rules and I can try to do it on my own. Also, the law of God humbles us that we need Christ for Christian living. Because the law is summed up in love the Lord God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength. To love your neighbor as yourself. The problem's not with the law, the problem's with me. Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, really expounds upon the law. And he encouraged us to live this way that he was teaching us. But the only way to do that is through Christ in us. Not in our own strength, not in our own power, but upon the power of the Spirit. So it it drives us to Christ for salvation, but also drives us to Christ for Christian living. Where I don't want you to go because of the clear teaching of the New Testament is we don't go back under the law. So don't read through this and go, well, now these laws, this is what controls and dictates my relationship with the Lord. Through our relationship with Christ, through the love that Christ has for us and that we have for Christ, We seek to live out loving God and loving one another, but we're not under the law anymore. We're under the grace of Jesus Christ. Amen? All right, well, let's dive into this. Now, these are the judgments which you shall set before them. God speaks this to Moses, set this before the children of Israel. You buy a Hebrew servant, he shall serve six years, and in the seventh year he shall go out free and pay nothing. So if an Israelite purchases another Israelite to be his servant, to be his slave, then on the seventh year, the slave was to be set free. They weren't to own a slave perpetually. They were to set them free upon the sixth year. If he comes in by himself, he shall go out by himself. If he comes in married, then his wife shall go out with him. If his master has given him a wife and she has borne him sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall be her masters and he shall go out by himself. But if the servant plainly says, I love my master, my wife and my children, I will not go out free, then his master shall bring him to the judges. He shall also bring him to the door or to the doorposts, and his master shall pierce his ear with an awl, and he shall serve him forever. And this was called a bond servant. So if the servant goes, man, my master is so good. He cares for all of my needs. He's loving. He's kind. He's patient. I have my family here. He's good. I love him. So I'm going to choose to serve him for the rest of my life. He would make that known to the master. Then the master would go ahead in public, have his ear pierced, and you would walk around with this symbol in your ear that you belonged to your master. Slave by choice, bondservant. The apostle Paul and others in writing the New Testament 
Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ. James, a bondservant of Jesus Christ. And this was quite a statement for these Jewish men. They were going back to this point in Exodus 21 and saying, I have found God to be an awesome master. And I'm choosing to be his servant. I'm choosing to be his, his slave. I'm a slave by choice. I'm a willful bondservant of Jesus Christ. And this is how they saw themselves. There's always this wrestling that's going on inside of us in serving the Lord because of our flesh, because of the ups and downs of our emotions, to be in a place of continually sacrificing ourselves before the Lord. It's been said that the problem with a living sacrifice is we crawl off the altar. So because of God's grace, because of his mercy, because of his kindness, choosing to say, Lord, I love you. You are a wonderful master. Life with you is truly the best. Serving you is the most fulfilling. This is where abundant life has been found. So I'm choosing to lay down my will. I'm choosing to serve you. I I desire to be obedient to whatever you're asking me to do. I think a lot of us would say, that's where I want to be. But in reality, I have selective obedience. In reality, I'm saying, Lord, I'll serve you inside of these parameters. And if it fits my preferences, if it fits my comfort, if it fits my expectations, then I'll serve you. But it's a whole nother thing to be a bondservant. It's a whole nother thing to be a slave unto Christ where Christ gets to choose. Whatever you choose. In this scenario with the master and the slave, the master chooses. God, you're my master. Because you're good, I trust you and I'm allowing you to choose. I believe that this is where the abundant Christian life is found and lost. (laughs) Jesus said, if you seek to save your life, you're going to lose it. But if you lose your life for my sake, you'll find it. The days that I'm most miserable, Eric's in charge. Or at least I think I'm in charge, or I'm trying to be in charge. Being selfish, got my eyes upon myself. But the days that I'm filled with the most joy is when I'm focused on the glory of Christ, focused on the goodness of Christ, and choosing to be a bondservant of Christ. Choosing to say, Lord, you have my rights. You have my will. You get to decide the direction of my life, and I want to be faithful unto you. So a wonderful picture of our relationship with the Lord and how God is our loving master. Verse 7, And if a man sells his daughter to be a female slave, she shall not go out as a male slave's do. If she does not please her master, who has betrothed her to himself, then he shall let her be redeemed. He shall have no right to sell her to a foreign people, since he has dealt deceitfully with her. And if he has betrothed her to his son, he shall deal with her according to the custom of the daughters. If he takes another wife, he shall not diminish her food, her clothing, her marriage rights. And if he does not do these three for her, then she shall go out free without paying money. These verses in the law are very difficult for us to to understand, to even begin to put ourselves back into this culture that Moses was living in, this ancient culture. And unfortunately, at this time, women were being treated terribly. And God's command here of how 
women should be treated was much better than how culture was treating them. And the essence of these laws is it's looking out for the rights of women so that they wouldn't be victims. And says, if a man sells his daughter, but obviously that's not God's intent that a man would sell his daughter. God is providing protection and saying, if the, the daughter is sold and then all of a sudden who she's sold to decides that he doesn't want to be married to her, then she needs to be taken care of and she needs to not be abandoned. It's also really difficult to understand a shame and honor culture. So if a woman is given to a man at this time and this culture and they know each other intimately and then he decides, hey, I don't want to be married to you any longer, her future is very dark. Her, her future, it's not like some other person wants to come and marry her. Another man wants to come and marry her. So God's attempt here is to be able to protect her in this situation. And also keep in mind that Jesus goes several steps beyond the law. So Christ refers to the law and says, you have heard it said that this is what the law declares, but now I'm declaring to you this. You've heard it said, an eye for an eye, but I'm telling you to turn the other cheek. So Christ has elevated the law and even taken it to a much higher standard in the way that we're to love God and we're to love each other. But having said that, some of what we're going to read tonight is difficult. As you're wrestling through it, these are some of the more difficult passages of Scripture to think through and wrestle through and understand, but I think it, the importance is to see that God laid these out not so that people would be mistreated, but to protect those who were being taken advantage of. You will find people that don't really study the Bible, Genesis to Revelation, and study this chapter and then say, I don't believe the Bible because of some of these laws that are, that are listed here. And so I would just encourage you as you study Exodus 21, to please also study Genesis to Revelation as well. So verse 11 deals with laws of violence. He who strikes a man so that he dies shall surely be put to death. So this is fairly controversial, isn't it? Capital punishment. Is it ever just for someone to be put to death? And God would say yes under a just process through a government that the Lord has put in place. If you take someone else's life in murder, then your life is to be taken in capital punishment. Manslaughter is a different thing, and it's laid out in verse 13 and 14. But why would God give this command? If all of the commands Jesus said are summed up in this, love God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength, love your neighbor as yourself— how does this law fit into this? Because this capital punishment shows the value of human life. So if I take someone else's life in murder, then my life should be taken. God is giving a very high value to human life. In Genesis 4 verse 10, when Cain killed Abel, God says this, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Isn't that an interesting statement? God's like, I see your blood of your brother, and the blood cries out to me. God 
sees that and hears that. Numbers 35 talks about blood defiling the land. And then Leviticus 18 talks about the land being defiled and the land vomiting out the people. God sees innocent blood that is shed. When someone's life is taken in murder, God sees that and the blood cries out to the Lord. I don't know about you, but it's overwhelming to me just the amount of people that get murdered in our city. Almost to the point where it's easier to not pay attention. It happens a lot. Almost to where, if you're not careful, you can read the news and go, oh, another person got shot and killed in our city. Right? Another person got shot and killed in our, in our state. Oh, there was another shooting over here. And the mass shootings get our attention, but one person who is shot and killed, it may not get our attention. But I got to tell you, to God, it gets his attention every time. Every time. Every time someone's murdered, it gets his attention. That blood cries out before the Lord. And so God puts this law in place to protect human life. Manslaughter, verse 13 and 14, however, if he did not lie in wait, but God delivered him into his hand, then I will appoint you for a place where he may flee. But if a man acts without premeditation against his neighbor to kill him by treachery, you shall take him from my altar that he may die. And so God gives a distinction here about premeditation. It says if there's premeditation, then it's murder and there needs to be capital punishment. But in verse 13, however, if he did not lie in wait, but God delivered him into his hand, being one of his enemies or someone who was attacking his family, then God puts that in a different category. Verse 15, and he who strikes his father or his mother shall surely be put to death. I wouldn't have lived to see my freshman year of high school. I, there was a point in time where I wanted a shot at the title and took a hit on my dad and punched him as hard as I could. And it, well, it didn't hurt him as much as I thought it was going to. And according to the law, that'd be the end of it, right? It's deserving of death. Sometimes we fail to see the weight of our sin from God's perspective. You know, a lot of us would go, really? Is that, is that that bad? You know, you got angry, you're 13, 14 years old, you, you hit your dad. Is that really something that's deserving of death? From God's perspective, this elevates the parental relationship. To the degree that God wants us to honor our father and mother, God would put a law like this in place. But the, one of the purposes of this law is to show us our need for a Savior, to show us that we need Jesus to die for our sins, that our sins are a serious thing before a holy God. In verse 16, he who kidnaps a man and sells him, or if he is found in his hand, shall surely be put to death. So if you kidnap someone and you sell them human trafficking, you'd be put to death because of that. How would human trafficking maybe diminish if there was capital punishment for kidnapping someone and selling them? According to the International Labor Organization, they estimate that there are 40.3 million people that are currently being human trafficked. 40.3 million people. 
Here's the definition of human trafficking. There's three things that would put you in this category. Children under the age of 18 induced into commercial sex, human trafficked. Adults 18 or over induced into commercial sex through force, fraud, or coercion. The third, children and adults induced to perform labor or services through force, fraud, or coercion. So it's a very specific description of what's human trafficking, and 40.3 million are human trafficked, right? So we see the common sense in these laws. Societies that get into God's word and allow God's word to form the basis for their laws, they thrive, God loves people, and these laws are out of his heart to protect uh, people. In verse 17, And he who curses his father or mother shall surely be put to death. I would have been put to death twice over growing up as a child, right? So if you curse your father, you curse your mother, you should be put to death. And again, God is, is showing the value of the parental relationship, that there would be respect that would be given to parents, that we would, would love and honor our parents. In verse 18, if men com- contend with each other and one strikes the other with a stone or with his fist and he does not die, but is confined to his bed. So get in a fight and the results of the fighting, a guy doesn't die, but he's in his bed with injuries. If he rises again and walks, about outside with his staff, then he who struck him shall be acquitted. He shall only pay for the loss of his time and shall provide for him to be thoroughly healed. One of the things we'll see in God's law in our relationship towards each other is responsibility for your actions and restitution. So you beat somebody up, they lost five days of work, but after that they were able to work, then you should take care of their needs for those five days. You, you should pay them what they would have made in their wage. And to me, as I was studying, this deepened what Christ has done for me on the cross because justice demands restitution. For Christ to die upon the cross, he made things right on my behalf before the Father when I believe in the death of Jesus Christ and his atonement in him being the propitiation for my sins. Restitution had to be required according to the law. That's the way that God designed it, and that's what Jesus accomplished for us on the cross. Because not only have we failed, and we deserve judgment, but we have no way of making restitution. I have no way of making restitution before a holy God. Only Jesus can make me right before a holy God. In verse 20, and if a man beats his male or female servant with a rod so that he dies under his hand, he shall surely be punished. Notwithstanding, if he remains alive a day or two, he shall not be punished, for he is his property. This is better treatment of slaves that was happening. This was not a license for slave owners to beat their their slaves. The aim of this law was not to place the slave master at the, at the mercy, but to restrict, let me read that again. The aim of this law was not to place the slave at the master's mercy, but to restrict the master's power over him. And remember, at this time, there was no law like this. In verse 22, if men fight and hurt a woman with child, 
so that she gives birth prematurely, yet no harm follows. He shall surely be punished according as the husband imposes on him, and he may pay as the judges determined. Look out. I would not want to be in that guy's shoes. Right? So you hurt a pregnant woman, and she doesn't lose child. Then the husband gets to decide what's the just recompense. Right? Run for your life on that one. And here's the heart of the law in verse 23. But if any harm follows, then you shall give life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. The law is brutal. The law is brutal when we really think about it. So I took your eye. I deserve to lose my eye. I took your hand, so I deserve to lose my hand. I took your tooth, so I lose my tooth. Stripe for stripe. And that's what justice should be as governments and judges look to give just punishment for wrongdoing. So we're very thankful for God's mercy. God's mercy. If it wasn't for the law, we would not fully understand what we deserve. When God doesn't give us what we deserve, that's a big deal. (laughs) Because we deserve a lot of punishment for our sin. In addition to that, not God not giving us judgment, but giving us his son, giving us grace and mercy and kindness is so overwhelming by the Lord. When it comes to justice, a lot of times in our lives, if someone wrongfully took one of your eyes, what does your flesh want? Both of your eyes. You took one of mine, I want two of yours. Like you took one of my teeth, I want five of yours, right? Because really, we're not longing for justice, but we're longing for revenge. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, it's really his commentary on the law. He said, blessed are the merciful, for you shall obtain mercy. To the degree that you give out, you'll receive. If we're going around being heavy-handed with people and always giving judgment to them, what are we going to receive? We're going to receive judgment. But if we can see our need for mercy and how much God has given us mercy and extend mercy to others, then we're going to receive mercy. Believe me, we all are going to provide plenty of opportunities and material for the need for mercy. Amen? So blessed are the merciful, for you shall obtain mercy. In verse 26, if a man strikes the eye of his male or female servant and destroys it, he shall let him go free for the sake of his eye. And if he knocks out the tooth of his male or female servant, he shall let him go free for the sake of his tooth. So accountability to the master and how he's treating his slave, his servant. In verse 28, if an ox scores a man or a woman to death, then the ox shall surely be stoned and its flesh shall not be eaten. But the owner of the ox shall be acquitted. But if the ox tended to thrust with its horn in times past, and it has been made known to its owner, and he has not kept it confined, so that it has killed a man or a woman, then the ox shall be stoned, and its owner shall be put to death. Responsibility for your actions. The law requires us 
to take responsibility of our actions and even the animals that we're carrying over. This is kind of crazy, and I haven't thought about this in this light. Is texting and driving is not loving to your neighbor. You know, God calls us to love him and to love our neighbor. When we're texting and driving, we're putting our neighbor's safety in jeopardy as well as our own and whoever may be in the car with us. That's the idea of what's being stated here. So you know that you've got this ox that's a problem. You haven't taken care of the problem. And so you put someone else's life in jeopardy, you're responsible. And that's what the law does with texting. If we're, if we're texting and we get in an accident and we take someone's life because we were texting, we weren't loving them and the law is going to hold us accountable, right? And so the nature of all of this is, is thinking this through. Am I loving my neighbor? You know, am I showing that the people's safety around me is more important than the text that has just come? I don't know what it is about human behavior, but isn't it so hard to say no to that text that goes off when you're driving? <laughs> it's, I gotta, right, right now, right? It's like, no, it, it's fine. I don't need to answer this text right right now. I can, I can wait until I get wherever I'm going. If it's that important, I can pull off the road and, and park my car. But it's that responsibility for our actions and, and the repercussions of our actions. If there is imposed on him a sum of money, then he shall pay to redeem his life whatever is imposed on him. Whether it has gored a son or gored a daughter, according to this judgment, it shall be done to him. If the ox gores a male or female servant, he shall give to their master 30 shekels of silver and the ox shall be stoned. I think it's important before we move on. When I read the scriptures, Genesis to Revelation, I don't think that God's heart is for slavery. So as you look at this, you're going, man, is, is God condoning slavery? Is he instructing slavery? I don't think so. I think that Moses knew that slavery was a reality. And so he says, here's the parameters on it. But God desires that we would belong to him and that we would never belong to uh, an individual, you know? Uh, I think God's heart would be to set people free from, from slavery, absolutely. In verse 33, and if a man opens a pit or a man digs a pit and doesn't cover it, and an ox or donkey falls in it, the owner of the pit shall make it good. He shall give money to their owner, but the dead animal shall be his. So if you, you're digging a pit and you don't cover it up, and it's not safe, for your neighbors and their animals and your neighbor or their animal falls into it, guess what? You're responsible. Does this seem a little different than the world that we're living in today? <clears throat> what does culture, a non-believing society, think when it comes to things like this? I'm not responsible. It was an accident, right? I just forgot. So what's the big deal? I got busy I forgot to cover the pit. How can you hold me responsible for, for this? But God's heart is out of love for him and love for one another that we go, yeah, I'm responsible. This, this, was, this was my responsibility. If one man's ox hurts another so that it dies, then they shall sell the live ox and divide the money from it, and the dead ox they shall also divide. 
Or if it was known that the ox tended to thrust in times past, and the owner has not kept it confined, he shall surely pay ox for ox, and the dead animal shall be his own. So it's kind of like if you have a dog that you know is a problem and bites people, and you don't take care of it, you don't keep it confined, or maybe even put it to sleep, ultimately you're responsible. Chapter 22. You guys doing okay? All right. If a man steals an ox or a sheep or an Amazon Prime box off of someone's doorstep and slaughters it or sells it, he shall have to restore five oxen for an ox and four sheep for a sheep and five Amazon Prime boxes. Restore it fivefold. What if that was in place today? You stole, so you got to restore it five times over? Out of love for God and a, and a love for uh, your neighbor. This is interesting when it comes to the narrative of David, King David. He's in charge, he's the authority. Nathan comes to him and says, Hey, there's a poor man in our kingdom who had a rich neighbor. And this poor man only had one lamb. And the rich neighbor comes and says, I need your lamb, and steals the lamb from from his neighbor instead of taking one of his own lambs. David gets irate, and David says that that rich landowner should be killed. Now, according to the law, what should that rich landowner had to have done? Pay it five times over. He should have given five lambs. But David says, no, he should be killed. And Nathan says to David, you're that man. You're that man. So when we're calling for judgment on someone, maybe to a degree that's even beyond the judgment that God would bring upon them, it's a good indicator that maybe we're the ones that are guilty and that's why we're so angry. Our sin looks worse on somebody else. Verse two, if the thief is found breaking in and is struck so that he dies, there shall be no guilt for his bloodshed. I think this is called the make my day law in Colorado, right? Someone breaks into your home, you have the right to be able to protect yourself. In verse 13, if the sun has risen on him, there shall be guilt for his bloodshed. So he should make full restitution. If he has nothing, then he shall be sold for his theft. So he's responsible to make restitution for what he sold. If he didn't have any money, then he would be sold. If the theft is certainly found alive in his hand, whether it's an ox or a donkey or a sheep, he shall restore double. If a man causes a field or vineyard to be grazed and lets loose his animal and it feeds in another man's field, he shall make restitution for the beast of his own field and the best of his own vineyard. So if you let your animal out and he goes feasts on your neighbor's hay, then you're responsible to be able to make a restitution. If fire breaks out and catches in thorns so that scratched grain, standing grain, or the field is consumed, he who kindled the fire shall surely make restitution. Ooh, this is a scary one, especially in a dry climate like Colorado. If we are under the law, right? If you start a fire, then it's your responsibility to make restitution for all the damage of the fire. September 2nd, 2017, a young 14-year-old boy, his family had immigrated from Ukraine, was playing in the gorge 
on the Columbia River, not too far from where my parents grew up. My parents grew up on the Washington side. He was on the Oregon side. He took two firecrackers, fireworks, throws them into the woods, and immediately the forest catches on fire. This huge forest fire takes place in one of the most gorgeous places on the planet. They estimate $37 million of damage. A judge ordered that that young man is responsible for restitution of $37 million as a 14-year-old. Didn't tie it back to the parents at all, just put it on the boy. But the catch was, it falls after 10 years. So after 10 years, he doesn't have to pay anymore, right? He, there's no way he's ever going to pay any, anywhere close uh, to that. But now, guys, you can probably relate to this to some degree, but all of us guys probably did something with fire that wasn't responsible at some, po- that, some point in our lives, right? Where we're, we're just, we weren't thinking like, oh, the whole field could catch on fire. We were just thinking, this is going to be fun. I'll, I'll throw this firework, or, or I'll take this lighter and WD-40, <sighs> flamethrower. I don't know anything about that. Just joking, I do. I do know something about that, right? And here he is. I can't imagine being that 14-year-old and going, man, what, what did I do, right? But the law, the law holds you accountable. In the same way with our sin, the law holds us accountable. We're responsible and there's restitution that is, is required. If a man delivers to his neighbor money or articles to keep and it is stolen out of a man's house, if the theft is found, he shall pay double. If the thief is not found, then the master of the house shall be brought to the judges to see whether he has put his hand into his neighbor's goods. For any kind of trespass, whether it concerns an ox, a donkey, sheep, or clothing, or any kind of lost thing which another claims to be his, the cause of both parties shall come before the judges, and whoever the judges condemn shall pay double to his neighbor." Man's always been sinful. <laughs> Since Adam and Eve, we, we've been, been sinful. And here we see back at the law, people stealing from each other and disputes over stuff. And judges had to sort it out. If a man delivers, verse 10, to his neighbor a donkey, an ox or sheep or any other animal keep and it dies, is hurt or driven away, no one seeing it, then an oath of the Lord shall be between them both that he has not put his hand on his neighbor's goods and the owner of it shall accept that and he shall not make and <clears throat> and he shall not make it good but if in fact it is stolen from him he shall make restitution to the owner if it's torn to pieces by a beast then he shall bring it as evidence and he shall not make good what was torn so you have this disagreement here i entrusted you to take care of my ox my cow And while you were taking care of my cow, the cow disappeared. Then you have to try to sort out, was it stolen or did something happen to this animal? And if a man borrows anything from his neighbor and it becomes injured or dies, the owner of it not being with it, he shall surely make it good. If his owner was with it, he shall not make it good. If it was hired, it came for for its hire. Verse 16 If a man entices a virgin who is not betrothed and lies with her, he shall surely pay the bride price for her to be his wife. 
If her father utterly refuses to give her to him, he shall surely pay money according to the bride price of the virgin. Same message, take responsibility. Sex is for marriage, so you entice this gal, you had sex with her, you need to go to her father, ask if you can marry her. If the father says no, then you need to pay the bride price. Again, because this gal's in a very vulnerable position in this culture and in this time, if she's lost her virginity and this guy doesn't want to marry her. Once again, wouldn't it be wonderful in our culture and our society if men took responsibility for having sex with a woman, right? And saying, look, there's, there's responsibility that is, is there, and I want to do right by the Lord with this. Here, I enticed this gal. Here we entered into sin. I want to do right by the Lord and right by this gal. Now, having said that, verse 17 is important. The dad's like, no, just because you guys had sex together, it's not a good thing for you guys to get married. So you need to pay up and get out of her life, right? So you may be having sex with someone who's not your spouse, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you need to marry them. You've got two choices. Marry them or break up. Tell them to pack sand. Say, that's it, we're done. Bite the wall, delete their number. See you later, right? That's your choice. You either move towards marriage or you move towards breaking up. But just because you're having sex doesn't mean that you should get married. You want to marry someone who loves the Lord, that you've got confidence that they're going to follow the Lord. I guess there's a third option, and that's stop having sex, seek the Lord, and see how if it's the Lord's will for, for you to get married. So I feel like I butchered that pretty good, so I'm going to move on to verse 18. You shall not permit a sorcerer to live. Again, this is under the law. So we're not doing any witch hunts in Manitou Springs, okay? So we're not under the law. Uh, We're not going out and doing any witch hunts. No Salem witch trials here this evening. Verse 19, whoever lies with an animal shall surely be put to death. When we see this, we just see the depravity of man, the sinfulness of man was alive and well in Moses' day. And Moses having to give these laws from the heart of God. He who sacrifices to any God except to the Lord only, he shall utterly be destroyed. So if there was any worship of other gods, then there was to be total destruction, capital punishment once again. You shall neither neither mistreat a stranger nor oppress him, for you are strangers in the land of Egypt. So God is marking the identity of the nation of Israel. You are strangers in Egypt. You know what it's like to be a foreigner. So don't take advantage of the foreigner. Don't enslave other people the way that you were enslaved. And we need to remember what God has done in our lives. We need to remember the bondage that he has brought us out of and how we, we treat others. In verse 22, you shall not afflict any widow or fatherless child. If you afflict them in any way and they cry At all to me, I will surely hear them, and my wrath will become hot, and I will kill you with the sword. Your wives shall be widows and your children fatherless. This is really powerful from the Lord. This expresses God's heart for the widow and the orphan, for the fatherless. One thing that I have observed here in Colorado Springs, in our country, and also internationally, It's the fatherless who are taken advantage of. There are sick, perverted, twisted people 
that look for fatherless children to take advantage of. And anybody that works with kids, and especially abuse kids, knows that fatherless kids are at risk, right? Widows are at risk. Widows are taken advantage of. Orphans are, are taken advantage of. And God hears their cries. And if we mess with the widow and we mess with the orphan, we're messing with God. The New Testament goes further, doesn't it? And James says, pure and undefiled religion is this, to visit the widow and the orphan in their suffering. God has called us as believers to care for the widow, to care for the fatherless, to care for the orphan, to be the advocate for those that don't, don't have a voice. It should always be the heart of believers and the business of the church to be caring for the widow and to be caring for the orphan because throughout scripture, they're in God's heart. In verse 25, if you lend money to any of my people who are poor among you, you shall not be like a money lender to them. You shall not charge them interest. God's heart also for the poor. And what we do to the least of these, we do unto the Lord, not taking advantage of the poor. If you ever take your neighbor's garment as a pledge, you shall return it to him before the sun goes down. So the pledge is they give the, the garment of a security that they're going to pay off their debt. And once they pay off their debt, God says, give them their garment back. In verse 27, for that's his only covering. It is his garment for his skin. What will he sleep in? And it will be, and it will be that when he cries to me, I will hear, for I am gracious. God hears the cry of the person that we're taking advantage of. Verse 28, you shall not revile God nor curse a ruler of your people. You shall not delay to offer the first of your ripe produce and your juices, the firstborn of your sons you shall give to me. Likewise, you shall do with your oxen and your sheep. It shall be with its mother seven days, and on the eighth day you shall give it to me. In the law, we'll see it later on as we go through, God required that the firstborn belong to the Lord, and then what you would do is you would buy them back. So your, your firstborn is then you would actually give to the Lord and buy back your, your firstborn. It was redemption or ransom. It was a picture of Jesus buying us back from our sins. And we end in verse 31, and you shall be holy men to me, you shall not eat meat torn by beasts in the field. You shall not, you shall throw it to the dogs. This is an interesting one to me. Like, why would God throw this in here? He says, I want you to be holy to me, and I don't want you to eat meat that's torn by beasts. I think the essence of verse 31 is God saying, I don't want you acting like an animal. Like, you're not an animal. And so here's this animal that you found in the field that was torn by a beast. Just go ahead and throw that to your dogs but I want you to sit down and I want you to praise me and I want there to be some civility to, to your life. Don't, don't be acting like the beasts of the field. So how do we seek to apply all of this? I don't know. Just God bless you guys. Have a good evening. You know, thanks. Yeah. I, think there's, I think there's really clear application and it shows us our need for Christ's sacrifice. We need to value scripture and value this section of scripture and go, God, what are you teaching me through this? And it helps us to see the weight and reality and gravity of our sin and then also how we need to make restitution to God and to others. And we're not able to do it. I'm not able to do it.
And Jesus also said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. And the law makes us poor in spirit, doesn't it? It makes us go, Jesus, thank you, thank you, thank you, to where when we get to Christ dying upon the cross for our sins, and he cried out and he said, it is finished, it is complete, paid in full. He has made complete restitution for my sin, to where Paul would write and say that we're justified, which means that we're declared righteous, by God, we're made righteous, reconciled unto God. We understand in a better way, in a greater way, how much God has forgiven us and how much he has made restitution for us. The law brings death. Even when the law was given, 3,000 people died. They were already breaking the law even before it was given. When the spirit was given, 3,000 people were saved. In 2 Corinthians 3, 17, it says, Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty, there is freedom. The Spirit of God does more than the law of God could ever do. And as we trust Christ for our sins, and the Spirit of God is living inside of us, we can live out loving God and loving our neighbor in a greater way. We actually have the power to be able to do that. And we find ourselves where we've wronged someone, And we know that God has forgiven us, but we go, man, I was wrong. I've sinned against you. Maybe it wasn't sin, but it was absolute irresponsibility. And the Spirit of God is saying, make restitution. Make it right with this person. Apply this and go, okay, I I get it. My irresponsibility cost you this, so I actually want to make this right with you. That the Spirit of God being able to allow us to love God and love people because we need to see the big themes of Scripture. And the big theme of Scripture is Christ and Him crucified. And when Christ then is in our lives, He causes us to love. To love God and to love people. And this section of Scripture does apply to our world today because our world needs this kind of love for God and for one another. Amen? And this is how we stand out to be salt and light is to say, God, I I just want to love you and I want to love my neighbor. So that's what we apply. So thankful for the sacrifice of Christ and then to love the Lord and to love one another. So guys, thanks for hanging with me. I know it was not an easy study, but I hope that you were blessed. So let's pray together. Oh, Jesus, as we read through the law, we're humbled. We deserve death. We deserve eternal separation from you. Yet you love us. While we were still sinners, you, Jesus, died for our sin. And you bring about restitution. And you cause us to be justified and to have peace with God. And as we celebrate communion tonight, may we know the height and depth and the width of your forgiveness in our lives. And may you help us through through the Spirit to not be focused on rules, but to be focused on loving you and loving others. So we love you in Jesus' name. Amen.